And may it all be to the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In Harper Lee's famous novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, Said in the 1930s in the fictional town of Macomb, Alabama, a southern lawyer named Atticus Finch agrees to take on the case of Tom Robinson as a defender. Tom Robinson is a black man who has been accused, charged with the crime of sexually assaulting a white woman. In the course of the trial, Atticus demonstrates convincingly beyond all doubt Not only that Tom Robinson did not commit this crime, but that he physically would not have been able to commit this crime. And in his closing arguments to an all-white jury, Atticus, after noting that the world is full of all kinds of natural inequalities, says this, But there is one way in this country in which all men are created equal. There is one human institution that makes a pauper the equal of a Rockefeller, the stupid man the equal of an Einstein, and the ignorant man the equal of any college president. That institution, gentlemen, is a court. It can be the Supreme Court of the United States or the humblest J.P. court in the land or this honorable court which you serve. Our courts have their faults, as does any human institution, but in this country, our courts are the great levelers. And in our courts, all men are created equal. I'm no idealist to believe firmly in the integrity of our courts and in the jury system. That is no ideal to me. It is a living, working reality. Now, unfortunately, as the story goes on to tell, in Macomb, Alabama in 1935, equality was indeed a mere ideal and not a living, working reality. As human beings, we have this odd ability to profess loyalty to certain ideals that may not ever have any real impact on our day-to-day lives. We have this odd ability to hold things up, even as mythological ideals, perhaps. But if they hover in the clouds above us and never touch us on the ground where we live, day to day, that's all that they are, mere ideals. Is it possible we could do this even with the gospel itself? Is it possible that the gospel could be to professing believers really little more than a nice mythological story, something we tell ourselves to to make us feel a little better. But as far as in the ground, on the ground, day to day, doesn't really have much effect. What will move the gospel from this near mythological ideal to a living, working reality in our lives? The certain conviction that it is true. That is what will do it. What will motivate you to kill sin that has been stubbornly holding on in your heart? What will motivate you to let go of opportunities to advance yourself in this world because you are seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? 
What will motivate you, if need be, to endure the loss of your job, your social standing, even your life, if that is what is required of you? The certain conviction that what we believe is, in fact, true. And that because it is true, it changes everything. I want you to imagine that you are able to get in contact with a man from Saudi Arabia. Let's say that this young man is in his 20s. And let's say you get, you get connected via social media, and in the course of a conversation, you lead this young man to faith in Christ. And then let's say that after he comes to faith and he processes what all that means, he tells you, I know what I need to do. I need to be baptized. But please understand what that means here where I am. If I am baptized and publicly take on the identity of a Christian, what that means is my family will immediately disown me. And the chance that someone in my own community will kill me is almost 100%. Let's imagine you're in that conversation. What do you do in that moment? Do you have the certainty of conviction in your heart to tell this young man who's got his whole life ahead of him, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth dying for. Go for it. Could you say that to him? And if you hesitate to answer that question, what will you say when it's your livelihood that's on the line? What will you say when it's your own life? That is on the line. How sure are you that what we profess faith in is true? The certainty of the gospel is what motivates us to live in the light of the gospel. Peter has just called us to do that in the first part of this chapter, especially verses 5 through 7, where he has called on us to pursue virtues. Well, we will have no motivation to do that if we do not believe that there is a day coming when Christ himself will come, when he will judge the living and the dead, when, when all of this that we see day in and day out is going to come to an end. There were false teachers who were challenging this idea, doubting this idea, proclaiming that it was nothing but a myth. Peter is answering their charges by telling them in this passage that what we proclaim to you of the future coming of Christ is no myth. It is no myth, it is a certain reality, and I've got the witnesses to prove it. And so in the course of this passage, Peter is going to give us today two very strong bases for certainty of our faith in the gospel, specifically certainty that Christ is going to come again, and that we can therefore live our lives in the light of that certain reality. Because there is all the difference in the world between living as though Christ is coming and living as though he is not. And so I want to look through these two, work through with you these two uh, bases for our certainty this morning. First, we can be certain of the future return of Christ because of the apostles' eyewitness testimony. This is in verses 16 to 18. We can be certain of the future return of Christ because of the apostles' eyewitness testimony. Let 
the various religions of this world and, and maybe even all of the religions of this world outside of Christianity do not hinge on the reality of historical events. You think through uh, any number of Eastern religions, they are largely more like philosophies of life. They're universal, timeless teachings about how to pursue a good life. Or think through pagan religions that, that speak of mythological stories of gods doing this or that. They have their stories, but the stories are not meant to be historical in character. They're, they're mythological in nature. Christianity alone depends on the certainty of historical events that happened in space and time. And if you think about it, when we confess our faith through the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, both of those ancient creeds of our faith mention Pontius Pilate, a man who's known in history books as a Roman governor of Judea at the time that Jesus lived. If these events that we confess did not happen in space and time, if they did not actually happen in the time of the Roman Empire, where they could have been witnessed by people, if they did not really happen, then our whole faith crumbles to the ground. Because of that, the New Testament lays strong emphasis on the importance of eyewitness testimony. And you have that here with Peter declaring that he and two other disciples with him were eyewitnesses of a certain event. Peter tells us about his own eyewitness testimony in verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's crucial to understand what is Peter witnessing to here. He speaks of the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Based on the context of the letter, this must refer to Jesus' second coming. You might even paraphrase it, the powerful coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter is speaking about his future coming in power. His first coming was in humility, but his future coming will be in power. The false teachers were saying, no, that's a myth. That's not going to happen. Everything's going to continue the way it always has. Peter says, no, I know that it won't. I know that Christ is coming because I have seen something with my own eyes. Now, what is it that Peter has seen? Peter has not witnessed the second coming of Christ, right? That hasn't happened yet. But Peter, James, and John, the three disciples of Jesus, did in fact witness the closest event to that in history. The one event in all history that most foreshadows and foretells the second coming of Christ in power and glory. And that event is what we know today as the transfiguration. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up a mountain. Mountains are often in Scripture places where heaven and earth meet. And there Peter, James, and John on top of that mountain, they beheld Jesus and all of a sudden his, his appearance was transfigured before them. He was glowing radiantly bright with divine glory. And they saw the cloud of God's presence surrounding him, symbolizing the Holy Spirit. They heard a voice from heaven declaring, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter, James, and John had an encounter with God on that mountain, very similar to what Moses had when he saw God in the burning bush. Peter therefore calls it the holy mountain, the place where 
where they met with God. Now, Peter says that they beheld the honor and glory that was given to Jesus on that occasion. Look at verse 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. When he says honor and glory, those terms could be overlapping in meaning, could be referring to the same thing, but I'm inclined to think they refer to distinct ideas. The glory they beheld was the physical, visible appearance of Christ, transfigured before them so that his divine glory was shining through in his appearance. His glory is what they saw. The honor is what they heard. The voice of God the Father testifying, this is my beloved Son. And in this way, Peter, James, and John were both eyewitnesses and earwitnesses of the honor and glory of Christ as a foretaste of what is to come when he returns. Now, what did that voice actually say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's an allusion to two Old Testament verses. And both of those verses are packed with meaning about who Jesus is. This is my beloved Son echoes Psalm 2 verse 7 where the Messiah is the one speaking and the Messiah, God's anointed King, says of the Lord, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that psalm depicts the Messiah as the one who is the heir to the nations and who will rule them with a rod of iron. By declaring, this is my beloved son, God the Father is declaring of Jesus Christ, this is the Messiah destined to rule the nations. And then when he said, in whom I am well pleased, he's echoing Isaiah 42 verse 1, which reads, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. God delights in his son, as he had declared in Isaiah 42, he delights in his servant. Jesus is not only the Messiah of Psalm 2, he is the suffering servant of Isaiah, the one who, who is destined to redeem the nations. As redeemer and as ruler of the nations, Jesus Christ was declared on the mountain to be the Son of God. And because he is, his return to do just that, to rule over the nations that he has redeemed, his return is no myth. It is a certain reality testified to us by eyewitnesses. Perhaps you've heard of Protestant liberalism or what might be called liberal Christianity or liberal, just liberalism in general. This was a movement in Christian uh, theology especially that took over most of our uh, institutions of higher learning, especially in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And and it's exerted massive influence over a number of denominations, especially in America and in Europe. Have you ever wondered what this movement is all about? Perhaps you've heard of it, but what exactly does it mean to be a theological liberal? Well, the movement, it seems, could be summarized best this way. It was an attempt to reconcile Christianity to the modern world by stripping away from Christianity all of the supernatural elements. Because in a modern world, people are not inclined to believe in the supernatural anymore. And so the thinking was, well, we need to make Christianity palatable to the modern age. We strip out the 
supernatural things and let's see what we have left that can really commend itself to the modern world. And so liberal theologians were prone to deny miracles. They would deny, for example, that Jesus was truly born of a virgin in history. They would deny that his miracles were true records of events that actually happened. They would deny that on the first Easter Sunday, his body actually came out of the tomb. And they would argue that the meaning of these stories is not that they happened, but it's that they point us to universal spiritual truths that we can still apply today. So it doesn't matter that Jesus' body came out of the tomb or not. What matters is that we who follow Jesus continue to carry on in his teachings and his example. That's the meaning of the resurrection. Everything is reduced to universal spiritual truths without ever happening in space and time. Perhaps you can tell by reading 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18, that Peter was not a theological liberal and that the Bible does not present itself in those terms. That liberalism is fine except for being diametrically opposed to everything the Bible actually says. Peter says here he's an eyewitness of something that happened in history that is a foretaste of something else that's going to happen in history. And these things are profoundly supernatural. And you can't simply erase them and think that you can possibly hold on to the Christian faith. There is no room for that, according to Peter's words here. We can be certain of the future return of Christ because of the apostles' eyewitness testimony first. And then a second witness to the certainty of Christ's coming is this. We can be certain of the future return of Christ because of the testimony of the Old Testament. In verses 19 to 21, we can be certain of the future return of Christ because of the testimony of the Old Testament. Perhaps you're with me to this point and you're thinking, okay, pastor, because everybody says, okay, pastor, I get what you're saying. Peter mentions eyewitnesses. Okay, that's, that's a good argument, but I've heard about eyewitnesses to UFO sightings. I watched a show the other day, and there were, there were eyewitnesses, several of them, who all saw the same thing at the same time, and they claim there's a UFO. So just being eyewitnesses, what does that really tell us? Is that, is that really an argument? Because we've got eyewitnesses to all kinds of weird stuff. And that's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Um, the main difference between those two things is that in one case, with what Peter is telling us about the transfiguration, in, in that case, we have an event that has a context. We have an event that takes place within a story that was foretold by prophets that fits like a hand in a glove right in the middle of a, of a wider story that gives it all meaning and tells us these are the implications for your life. Whether or not Jesus was transfigured on that mountain has massive implications for the way you live day to day. Whether or not three people out in a small town actually saw a UFO or not, I don't know. There's no context within which to make sense of that anyway. Whether they did or not, I can't say, but I do know 
whatever the answer to that question is, it may not have massive implications for me. This does. And that's the main difference. This has massive implications because of the context within which it happened, because of the story within which it comes, because of the prophetic scriptures that foretold the coming of the Messiah. And so Peter now goes back to those scriptures to tell us that they are our second witness to the certainty of Christ's future coming. He tells us in verse 19, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. It's very possible that the false teachers Peter opposes in this letter were denying the second coming, but were also denying the reliability of the Old Testament prophets. They might have been saying something to the effect of, sure, God may have given revelation to those prophets of old, but how are we to know that they interpreted that revelation correctly? Perhaps God gave them dreams and visions, but when they actually communicated those in the Scriptures, they got it all messed up. They were fallible men, and they were speaking infallible words, not, not infallible, they were speaking fallible words uh, about a revelation God had given. So they cannot be relied upon to tell us about the future kingdom of the Messiah. Peter says, no, these writings, these scriptures have been more fully confirmed. They've been more fully confirmed by the events that we ourselves, the apostles, have witnessed. And therefore, you, my readers, must pay attention to them as though this is your only lamp in a dark place, as though this is your only way of navigating a dangerous world. Pay attention to the Scriptures to guide you into all truth. The day will come when the darkness will pass, when the morning will dawn, when the morning star, a reference to the planet Venus that's often seen before the sun rises, the morning star will appear heralding the beginning of a new day. And I believe that itself is a, a reference to the Messiah's coming. Uh, in, in Numbers 24, 17, the prophet Balaam had spoken of the coming Messiah as a star who will come out of Jacob. So Peter is saying, yes, the day will come when Christ will return, when we will have light, when the knowledge of God will be so far advanced beyond what we have now that we will no longer need the Scriptures. But until that day comes... The Scripture is your light in a darkened place. So Scripture must be our guide, and Peter tells us why in verses 20 and 21, when he tells us exactly what Scripture is. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures of the Old Testament did not arise from the prophets' own interpretations of what God had revealed to them. They received dreams, they received visions, they received other forms of revelation from God, but they were not left on their own to interpret that in their own fallible words. God Himself gave them the very words to say in interpreting those revelations for us, in writing those revelations down and interpreting them so that we could understand. God himself 
spoke through those prophets as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Scripture has its origin not in the will of man, but in God Himself. And it is, therefore, the Word of God. Our statement of faith says of Scripture, the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of Himself to man It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. We speak of the Bible as the inspired, the inerrant, the infallible Word of God. What do these words mean? Inspired means that it was produced not by the will of man, but by the Holy Spirit. Speaking through the agency of men, the very words that God wanted to give us, so that Scripture is the Word of God. Inerrant means that it is without error in all that it affirms. It speaks only truth and is the supreme authority by which we judge all truth. Infallible is an even stronger word than inerrant. Inerrant means it has no errors. Infallible means it is incapable of failing. It is incapable of being wrong in anything that it says because its origin is from God. We must hold these truths about Scripture so that Scripture itself will be our guide in darkness. I have known many believers, many professing believers, who weren't quite convinced of this doctrine of Scripture. And over time, I have watched their trajectory go farther and farther and farther away from Christian orthodoxy. If anyone is going to sow within you doubt about the reliability, the trustworthiness, the inerrancy, the infallibility, the inspiration of Scripture, that person is attempting to lead you away from the gospel. He or she may not realize it, but that's what that person is doing. We must hold fast to what the Bible says about itself. This is where we get this. We get it from the Bible itself. Peter telling us in Scripture what Scripture is. It is inspired by God. Therefore, it is inerrant. Therefore, it is infallible. Now, what this means for us is that you must renew your mind daily. Renew your mind daily by devoting yourself to Scripture. Devoting yourself to hearing it, to reading it, to meditating on it to living under it, to applying it to your life, to allowing it to offend you and correct you. I recently saw a video where R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, was giving an introduction to John MacArthur at a certain conference. I don't know where or when, but uh, Dr. Sproul, who's now gone on to glory, Dr. Sproul was introducing MacArthur and And you got to understand, there are some theological differences between these two men. Um, Sproul was a Presbyterian. He he put the Bible together in a certain way when it comes to questions of Israel and the church and how the future is going to unfold. And and that led him to certain conclusions about baptism that were different from where MacArthur stands. MacArthur's more Baptistic theologian, and he leans toward what's called dispensationalism. So they have very different understandings on a number of questions. But this is what Dr. Sproul said in introducing John MacArthur. This is the essence of what he said. 
I've known John MacArthur for many years. And I know him to be a man who, when we get into a disagreement, we may argue back and forth. We, we may even get down into the mud and wrestle it out. But this is what I know about John MacArthur. He is a man who, if he is ever convinced that the Bible teaches contrary to what he believes, he will change his mind on the spot to submit his thinking to Scripture. And I thought, what an incredibly high compliment to pay to a man. We have to allow the Bible to correct us. We have to allow the Bible to say what it says. We have to say that that God has all the freedom that he wants to tell me things that I may not want to hear. He has all the freedom to correct me because I know I need correction. I know I need repentance. I know I need to change my mind about certain things. And if you think about it, that's how every good relationship works, right? In your own life, in, in your best relationships you have with other people, is there the freedom to be honest with one another there? Or do you prefer to have relationships only with people who will affirm you in everything? You know what we call those people? We call them yes men or yes women. Do you want to surround yourself with yes men or yes women? If you do, you don't want relationships. That's not what you're looking for. Well, if it's true with other people, how much more true is it with God? That to know God means at least this, that God can correct me whenever he desires. God has all authority and freedom to tell me things I don't want to hear, and I must submit to them. That's what it means to live under the authority of the inspired, the inerrant, the infallible scriptures as the word of God. In the 17th century, philosophy underwent a major shift as it moved into the modern world. And the philosopher who seems to have been the trailblazer was a Frenchman uh, by the name of René Descartes. Descartes set out on a project of establishing certainty of knowledge that was based on a different foundation from what had been argued before throughout the Middle Ages. Throughout the Middle Ages and and into the, the era of the Reformation, there was broad agreement, at least in the West, there was broad agreement that truth, certainty of the truth, comes from God's revelation. Now, there's a difference of opinion about how we know God's revelation, but that was the starting point. God must reveal what is true. Rene Descartes comes along, and he argues instead that the certainty of truth must come from human reason. It must begin with our own reasoning ability. And so he set out on a project to establish all certainty of truth on the basis of his own reason. And he decided to do that by doubting everything that he could possibly doubt. So all of these things that you and I take for granted every day, he started to doubt them. And he finally got to the point where he said, if I doubt everything that I can possibly doubt, I get to one bedrock principle, one thing that I know that I cannot doubt. And that is the fact that I'm doubting. So, there's one thing I can be sure of. I'm doubting. And if I'm doubting, that must mean I'm thinking, because doubt is an act of thought. So, based on the fact that I'm thinking, 
which is a certainty, I can't deny it, I must therefore conclude that I exist. So through all that reasoning process, he came to the sure conclusion of his own existence. Uh, Famously, it was put in these words, I think, therefore I am. And from there, Rene Descartes sought to build up an entire edifice of human knowledge, starting from that foundation of human reason, doubting everything it could possibly doubt. Now, since the time of Descartes, numerous other philosophers came along and they, they established patterns of thinking in the modern world and they disagreed with Descartes here and there. The, the methods have been different. They've been all over the map in terms of how we get to any kind of knowledge. But one thing that has been common in the modern world of philosophy is that the starting place for knowledge is always taken as ourselves. We start from the point of human reason. Or we start from the point of human experience, and from there we've got to build up to certainties. The problem with that is that God didn't design us to do it that way. God didn't make us the kinds of creatures who can establish certainty within ourselves. He made us limited, finite beings who are dependent on Him. We know we're dependent on God for life, for breath, for food and drink, for shelter. We know we depend on God for all these things. Why should we assume that we don't also depend on God for the knowledge of truth? And thus, the proper response to the modern project of knowing is to reaffirm once again that the certain basis of all knowledge is God's revelation given to us. God himself is the ground of all truth. And if we are to know anything with certainty, it's because we know what God himself has spoken what God himself has said to us. That's where we get the certainty of conviction. The certainty of conviction that will motivate our pursuit of holiness and that will uphold us as we endure through the challenges of this world. You know, people who stand up to tyrants for the sake of the truth of the gospel They don't do it over matters that they do not hold as sure convictions. People who get thrown into fiery furnaces or get cast into a den of lions, they don't get thrown into those places over matters of which they're not really sure. And so if you go out into this world without certain conviction that Christ is, is Messiah, that he lived and he died, that he is coming again. This world is going to eat your faith alive. God knows this about us. God knows what we need. And so he's given us the sure testimony of the New Testament apostles and the Old Testament prophets. He's given us the sure testimony of his word to tell us That yes, Jesus Christ is coming again. We confess his sinless life. We confess his death for us on the cross, delivering us from the wrath to come. We confess his resurrection for our justification. We confess his current reign at the right hand of the Father. We confess his coming again in power. These are not mythological ideals. These are living working realities, and they make all the difference. 
At this time, we're going to come to the Lord's table. I'm going to invite our ushers to come on forward and get masks and gloves on. I want to invite you to eat and to drink with us. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who has confessed your faith publicly and is a member in standing, good standing with a local church. If that's you, then in a few moments we'll come forward and these ushers will, will set double cups out. So the bread and the juice are together. You just have to grab one for yourself. So um, they'll set these out and we'll come row by row from the outside to grab one and then to go inside back to your seat. Now, if that's not you today, if you are not a believer in Christ or you're, you, um, you've simply not made that known publicly by, by professing your faith, then we invite you to do that. We invite you to just abstain today from the table, but to come to Christ in faith, to profess yourself publicly a disciple of Jesus Christ, to commit to Him in baptism. We would love to baptize you. So if you, if you have any further inquiries about that, we would love to hear from you, and we invite you to do that. But at this time, I want to pray, and then we'll invite you to come row by row to grab communion, and then we'll all eat and drink together at, after you're back at your seats. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have given us not only the word to encourage us in our faith and to instruct us, but the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper to reassure us through our senses of your promises. And so as we now act in faith, taking hold of your promise once again through these tangible means, may we be strengthened in the faith we have professed. And may we be bound together in unity as a church. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So front row, you can